there. This is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. Creative types and how they do it, how they keep going, how they make it happen. The thrill of victory, the agony of defeat, all of that stuff. I love to talk about it. And that's what this podcast is about. And today my guest, Matt Carter, does everything. Uh, one of the reviews I read called him a one-man film studio. He's the co-writer and director of a movie called In From The Side. It's a gay romance set in a London gay rugby league. And it's as sexy as it sounds. Like, I'm already in. Come for the shorts, stay for the drama. Uh, that's what I always say. Um... I have a funny story about how I learned about this movie, and uh, I share it with Matt in the podcast, and it's a little embarrassing. But um, Matt didn't just co-write and direct it. He raised the money. He did the special effects. He composed the music. Um, he did all this stuff, and you know what? He's delightful. Before we get to the interview, though, I want to let you know that this podcast, Dennis Anyone, is brought to you by me. That's it. That's pretty much it. Uh, I have a great mixer uh, that works with the DNR Studios, AJ Sousa, that helps mix the episodes. But otherwise, it's all me. And there are two ways you can support this podcast if you like what you hear. You can go to my own page, DennisAnyone.net uh, slash support, and you can put a tip in my virtual tip jar. My good friend Scott did that recently over the holidays. I just got a surprise Venmo, and he said thanks for all the fun podcasts this year. And it, it just uh, helped me out. And made me smile and helps me cover the expenses that come with doing the podcast. And the other thing you can do to support the podcast is become a subscriber to DNR Studios. It's a collective of shows that I'm part of. And for a monthly fee, you get my show early and you get all these other great shows. And you can learn about that at dnrstudios.com. All right, that's enough of the housekeeping and the plugs. Here now is the interview with Matt Carter. Joining me from London, it's Matt Carter, the man behind the movie, in from the side. He wrote, he directed it, he did a bunch of other stuff that we're going to get into. Hi, Matt. Hi, how's it going? It's going good. So it's late at night in Los Angeles. It's early in the morning in London. We're making this happen because your movie is opening in L.A. and New York in the U.S. on the 20th. So we wanted to, to make this happen. Tell people that don't know anything about your movie what it's about. Essentially, it's a sort of forbidden love story between two sort of equally attached gay men in a gay men's rugby club uh, who... Uh, sort of meet each other, they catch out the eyes across the room at each other, and there's this instant connection, but obviously they cannot be together because, uh, you know, they they both have partners in just both the dysfunctional relationships. It's sort of an exploration of sort of family within this sort of this rugby community and, uh, you know, belonging. It's a lot of things. And obviously the sort of interesting thing that there's a forbidden love story, but being a gay story, it doesn't stem from homophobia and there's no coming out storyline. So it's quite refreshingly free from all those sort of things. And it explores kind of lots of other interesting elements of the gay experience. Well, it's funny you mentioned that homophobia thing because we're so used to seeing those, that in movies. So I'm watching your movie going, oh, there's the coach. He's going to be a dick to them. Oh, there's the, the guy at the carnival is going to be a dick to them. I, I kept waiting for homophobia to be the issue and it never was. And it was like, oh, that's really interesting. I think in some ways we're so conditioned to expect that gay narratives are going to be either a coming out story or isn't it so difficult the world hates me sort of homophobia storylines. Right. I think it, it says more about us, I think, when we watch films to sort of realize, you know, think that, I mean, a lot of people when I watch the film are expecting one of the characters to die. And again, that says so much about the it audience. That, you know, we, it's the bury your gaze thing. You know, we, we, we're so used to these characters experience hardship on, on screen, you know, in the, in the ways that we're used to it. The to same expecting. kind of hardship over and it, over it, and it over. Yeah, and it feels like an inversion of, of expectation that happens. But really, it's, it's actually, it says more about us as an audience that we have these sort of low-bar expectations and what we want from gay storylines. And also, when that is not the issue, you're able to explore other things, complicated it things, yeah. murky things. There's, there's, 
There's like, so much you can do when you when you lay down that burden of the homophobia and the comeback storylines. Story I mean, those are important topics, obviously, but they're being very well covered by a lot of filmmakers. But I don't see as much of the other stories being told, which is why, for me, it's quite important, I found, to, to explore other stuff. And you have a lot of screen time when you dispense with that. You can do, you know, there's, I always say to people, there's life after coming out. We have a whole life ahead of us, you know, and stories that, you know, within our community to tell and, you know, experiences that are very specific to our community that we don't really tell because we were telling the same story over and over, which is the coming out and the homophobia storylines. Yeah, exactly. Um, I have a funny story about how I came to know about your movie, and it's also a little embarrassing, so I'm going with it. Here, here it is. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, on YouTube, sometimes people will make a music video using footage from the trailer that's gay and romantic, and it wasn't even your trailer. It was like a song, but with images from the trailer, I think, of these two guys. And I'm like, what is this? video it's it looks like it's from a movie like i'm trying to solve the mystery like what is this and i'm like oh no they're they're just straight guys and they found moments where they kind of look at and i'm like no they're making out okay this is clearly a movie where these two hot guys are making out and they play rugby and then <laughs> there's one moment where the actor who plays mark i believe it's alexander lincoln yep he's looking at the other guy with so much new love in his eyes that I literally grabbed my camera and took a picture of the frame because and I, put, I put it on my dream board. You know, you do those dream boards at the beginning of the year. Yeah. I told you it was an embarrassing story because I want that look in my life. I think I want to be the person that, that looks that way at another person or I'll, I think, a, a, I think you a, ideally you want both, but yeah, I think it's it's funny how many memes have been made from the film. Actually, I was quite surprised the, the amount of sort of fan edits of things. But there, I think there was def, there was one meme of the little image that someone took of I think something similar to what you did said saying find someone who looks at you the way Alexander Lincoln looks at Alexander King in this scene. It <laughs> is that it he it's that actor has that thing in his eyes and it's his performance. Maybe it's the way it's it's just he captures that thing and it was so like instantaneous i was like that that's what i need that's what i want and then i kept digging to find out what this movie was and then the next thing you know i'm emailing the distributor and here we are so um the the movie is set in a gay rugby league is that a big thing in in the uk is there is there a league like that that's that popular I mean, it's, a, it's a big thing in the world really i mean yeah. uh, international gay rugby which is the sort of official title of it you know there's i think there's over 120 uh, sort of in, gay and inclusive rugby clubs across the world and they have sort of world tournaments we have european tournaments american tournaments it's actually it's a much bigger world than people think it wasn't purpose made for the film it's very much a world that i've been a part of for about eight, eight or nine years now uh, you know, I've been a player, a coach, a referee, and you know, I've kind of lived that life. And I kind of wanted to commit that to film because it's such a rich, you know, culture with so many interesting nuances and you know, cultural elements to it. And but it's a real world. You know, it, it wasn't purpose made for the film. Obviously, the, the club in the film is a fictional club. It's an amalgamation of many of the different clubs that I've known. But it's it's very representative of what that was like. And that's a real world. You know, and I think people don't realize that these inclusive clubs, not just rugby, but sport generally exist out there because as gay men, we always had such a bad experience with sport in, in, you know, in school. And a lot of people never take it up again. But when you find these inclusive clubs, you go, wow, actually, I can do sport. And it, it's really fun. And you know, it, people sort of suddenly get the, the well-being that sport could bring to their lives. And that's the sort of power of these clubs. And that's why I think the power of the film comes through, because it's showing this sense of belonging and community, which I think we sadly miss a lot of the time as, as gay men. You know, outside of the clubbing scene, it's difficult to find these sort of large groups of like-minded individuals that you can sort of bond over this thing over. And that's basically, you know, what the, the, the sort of core of the film is. Right. You want to be a part of something. You want to feel like you're a part of a team. Did you play rugby as a, as a kid in school? 
I did. Yes, I, I played from a young age, but I sort of I think I was I wasn't amazingly good at it at a young age. I was a bit of a late bloomer, really, and so I sort of shuffled out into one of the other sort of more athletic sort of sports rather than sort of the physical ones. But I was sort of sad really because I, I, I we discovered rugby as you know my, in my uh, my twenties and absolutely fell in love with it again. And, and I think it was a part of it is the environment. You know, when you play in an environment of sort of inclusivity or you know around other gay men. The sort of a lot of the tensions that, that sport can sometimes bring it taken away, and you just focus on the enjoyment and the sporting element of it, and the kind of the the expectation to be the best or to sort of you know to you know all the sort of thing you know the baggage that goes with that isn't there. And you know I'm very passionate about sort of inclusive sport. I can still coach for an amazing rugby club down in Brighton in the south coast of the UK, of the UK, and I help new people who've never played the sport learn it within a sort of eight week period. And we're actually we've just started our new intake literally this week, and it's it's amazing seeing people coming in, you know, looking terrified and then watching their confidence build over the eight weeks but you know it is an important thing i think you know uh obviously the story is a love story you know first and foremost but it's set in this setting of this inclusive rugby world and these sportsmen and, and this we, we use the, the phrase rugby family quite a lot in the film and it is like a family really you know you have these these people these characters who you know don't always get along but like a family you, know, you sort of put up with each other and you go, you go through it together and that's and very rarely do you outside of a sort of workplace do you really get that environment where these people are by choice spending time with people from such different walks of life that they have this sort of common bond with each other. Yeah, I didn't know much about rugby and how it looks, how it's played, the culture of it. I like, I've always liked the shorts. I've always been a fan of the shorts. Um, <laughs> but like after the game, it seems like both teams go out and they all wear ties. It's like a social thing after the game, and that's yeah. part of the culture. And both teams, not not just the the winning team by themselves, right? No, I mean generally, I mean you, you, both teams will go out. You know, there's like generally when you go to a nightclub, you kind of change into kind of. Uh, right. you know, you know, but, but sometimes on an away, away match, you don't. You know, I've gone out sort of clubbing in my my shirt and tie, and obviously every club has uh, their own specific tie and their own colours, and so there's it's it's really kind of you know it, on film it looks great because you know you've got these sort of characters in sort of you know you can see everyone by what club they are from what tie they wear and. And it is this sort of amazing culture, but, you know, it's this sort of bond. And I think rugby is quite unique and it has this sort of culture of respect that because it's such a physical sport, without that, it would kind of be a bloodbath. But, you know, I think unlike a lot of sports, it's it fosters this real respectful culture that, you know, you do, you know, when you tackle someone, you help them off the ground, you know, you, you no matter if you win or lose, you sort of go out drinking with the, the team afterwards. And yeah, you know, it, it's it's very special. Well, it, there's a lot of controversy in American football now about injuries, and I'm watching this movie go, do, do people get really badly hurt in rugby, or is there something about the game that makes it super different than, say, American football? Uh, it's it, it's uh, yes and no. I mean, yes, you do get quite bad injuries in rugby, but uh, there are, in American football, I mean, my limited understanding of American football, so I do apologize. I think you sort of tackle anyone, essentially, whereas you only tackle the person who carries the ball in rugby. So there's the limited amount of sort of contact. And it's um, again, no one wears padding. So you've not got any kind of hard metal objects going to smash in someone. You know, it's just body on body. And you, you specifically try and tackle the soft parts of body. So it's kind of, but it, it, you know, people do get injured. It is a physical sport, but uh, in, in some ways we will try for that as well you know we do a lot of training to condition your body to to resist those kind of impacts and to not be injured by them you know you wouldn't go uh, you wouldn't go straight into a match if you hadn't been training for six months you know you do a lot of training a lot of fitness to to prepare your body for those hits so it, it's not as horrific i mean i don't i'm not, again i'm not uh, super up with um american football so i don't know how many injuries we're talking about here but you know rugby's uh, not super super injury prone but it is obviously a contact sport like anything so injury is always a possibility um, growing up, I wasn't super into sports. I played basketball a little, but I was just trying to, I think you're trying to prove you're not a sissy. And so, so many of these things that, that 
were kind of traumatizing as kids or they made us nervous or if I do that, I'm not going to do it well and they're going to know my secret. All of these things that we sort of push, say we're not into it, sometimes they come back around later in life. Like I was never into camping as a kid because I thought it would give me away and I wasn't that into it. But the idea of now going out and like camping under the stars with friends, that sounds amazing. Like you have to sort of reclaim these things that we were like, oh, that's going to, that's not for me. I, I, people call me a sissy already. I can't, I can't risk it. Right. Are there things yeah. like that, that th- does that idea resonate with you? Were there things that you're like, I avoided that as a kid, but I can own it as an adult now. Absolutely. I mean, and there's a whole, so, you know, we could, we could talk about this for hours. You know, this, this is the whole sort of themes around the film that I've thought about very deeply for a very long time around, you know, proving oneself, uh, you know, like I said, we have, a, there's a whole life after coming out and you, it's hard to separate the pre coming out experience with sport. And those two things are very entangled in the sense that we're worried about being outed. But when you take that away and you're, you're, you're not worrying about that and you're just your authentic self around other people who are like-minded, whether they're, you know, inclusive, an inclusive crowd or people who are other gay men. You know, you, that, that fear of, I'm going to be found out suddenly goes away and suddenly it's about, can I be tough? But it, not in a sort of, you know, what we think of as a, you know, a heteronormative or masculine type way, but right. there's a toughness that, that everyone can have from, you know, if, whether you're a drag queen or whether you're kind of a rugby player, you know, there's, there's a, a toughness of soul. And I think that's where these sort of sports really bring you up because you, you, you're going through a bit like camping or anything. It's a challenge and a struggle that when you overcome, you get that sense of achievement. And that's kind of irrespective of kind of what we think of as gender norms, really. You know, I mean, rugby is really a sport for everyone and every kind of body type. There's no kind of, uh, what you know, what we think of sort of this toxic masculinity element, and that's one of the things that you know in the film I really try to sort of show is that you know it isn't what people would assume as this kind of heteronormative toxic masculine environment. It's a very healthy sort of uh, you know display of masculinity and or femininity because rugby literally appeals to everyone. You know, women's rugby is a huge thing as well. You know, it's uh, but but there's a toughness that goes with all of them. But that's a toughness of uh, of spirit more than anything else, I'd say. I don't follow sports very closely, but every once in a while I envy people that do. Um, like when the world cup was happening, I was like, Oh, I wish I had a team. I wish I had friends that I could go watch it with because to me, the romance of loving sports teams is so right on the surface. Like the straight guys that love their cry over their teams. To me, it's super romantic. It's about love, right? And I mean, yeah, I'd say, I'd say it's a sense of belonging that it gives you, you know, you feel connected to other people around you and to your friends through this thing. And it, it is a love for each other in a way, but you know, that, that's what belonging is. It's a, it's a collective love really. Right, and and there may be some machismo around it, but to me, it's so nakedly heart on sleeve. Like there, it's and, and that part of it really kind of touches me. And like that's why I was kind of following the World Cup, even though I I hadn't always followed it. But I was like, I got I, I cried, you know, watching certain footage and the 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 people that are finally winning and getting their moment. Like it's epic, and it's. To me, it it's, is, just, you know, it's just love, it right? It's a love story. But it's, in a way. it's also, it's also like a, sort of a culturally uh, acceptable way to be vulnerable around yes. people. You know, when, when you lose, you collectively are all allowed to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. You're all allowed to cry. That's that's completely normalized. And you know, it's very rare you get those kind of things where you know you can have these outpouring of emotions, and it's completely sort of normal and accepted, and no one judges you for it. And you're all in the same boat with each other. You're all sharing that same experience, and that's that vulnerability. Right. I and there's this other pet peeve that I have that has to do with sports. Like on a, there'll be a pol- political talk show and there'll be people arguing and then it, they'll, they'll be disagreeing about everything. And then at the end, they'll be like, one more question. How about those Yankees? Like they'll bring it around to sport and then they'll bond and they'll catch. And then I always feel left out of that. Like, oh, I don't have that thing. And so I, I think I, one of my, 
kind of things to look for is more opportunities to be a part of that world, whether as a spectator or whatever, because I do find it very rousing and exciting. And I also get very yeah. excited about the Oscars in the same way. Um, well, you know, everyone has their thing, you know, whether right. it's sport, but they all tap into this same sort of core need, I guess, to, to connect with other people, whether it's sport, whether it's the Oscars, whether it's theater, you know, any kind of uh, thing that you, we can all bond together over. Yeah. There's this article I read, I think it was in the Washington Post last year, and I, it stayed with me, and I think about it all the time. They were talking about how there are more women going to university in the United States now, and uh, men are falling behind. But if there were an island that were just gay men, they would be the most educated in the world. <laughs> like, gay men go to, go to college, and, you know, they, they excel, I guess, or achieve. And they were talking about why that is, and of course there's that best little boy in the world theory where we're trying to, we're going to do everything right so people will like us. But they also talked about all these masculinity tests that straight men have to pass. Like they have to, they have to constantly assert their masculinity. And that test is never do well in calculus. It's always other stuff, or you know, and gay men, like I can think of my own background, I didn't do the stuff that most of my straight peers did. I checked out of that game and I got to pursue the things that I wanted, if that makes sense. And I just thought about yeah. that in, in – uh, I think about that a lot in, in, in terms of like I feel bad that they have to constantly try to prove themselves and that it doesn't always set them up for the future. I have no thoughts about that or no questions, but it resonated well, with the things we're talking they're about. They're very interesting thoughts. You know, I think uh, I, I, love, I love hearing about these kind of these sort of thoughts about stuff because it is kind of all relevant, and especially in sports, you know, the, the, the need to prove yourself. And I think, you know, as gay men as well, the sort of, you know, we have to you know, be seen as sort of equal to heterosexual men. And, and you know, when people dispense of that, I think that's where we do sort of start, you know, wanting to dominate in every field that we, we enter because it's that kind of, we have to say, you know, and there's a whole, there's a whole field of study, you know, behind sort of the gay trauma and the baggage we have as adults to try and sort of prove that we're worthy as gay men. And, you know, I'm probably not the best person to talk about that because, you know, I'm sure there's people who are much more studied in this. But, um, you know, my limited experience in this in, in a sort of rugby and sporting context and in a film context, you know, I think it's uh, as, as a chronic attempted overachiever myself. <laughs> You know, I I, I I don't know where that stems from for me, but, you know, I think uh, I just love sort of trying to be creative and sort of to, you know, help other people with with sport and stuff. But I think, yeah, there's definitely an element, of, especially the, those rights of passages that straight men go through, that maybe if we do check out of them, maybe there is an inherent need in us, as, you know, as people generally, as human beings, to have to have to have those kind of rights of passages. And maybe as gay men, we find our own ones. We find our uh, own. Because- we don't have to do all of those if we don't want to. If you want to, that's great. But I think that... Like I look back, I didn't go, I didn't play little league. All my friends did, because I, I was a sissy kid, and it wasn't easy. But once it was kind of known around my, you know, town or whatever, I got to do my own thing, and I and I didn't spend time doing things I wasn't passionate about just to try to prove something. I that 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 ship had sailed. I wasn't. I was the. I was not that guy, and everyone knew it, and it was okay, and I was able to be my own person. So. The point is, I feel horrible for straight guys that they have to keep trying to improve, you know. And I think maybe we'll do a toll-free number at the end for them. I think it's important. Um, both of your actors are named Alexander. Did that get confusing? Uh, so, no, it's slightly. It's more confusing during the press stuff because one one's Ali and one's Alex. So on oh. set, it was very differentiate. Uh, well, they're both Alexander, but one always goes by Ali and one goes by – Alexander King uh, goes by Ali. 
Um, whereas Alexander Lincolns and Alex. So it, on set it was easy. But yes, during the press tours, the, uh, I think, uh, Ali went on Sky News in the UK, just a big news channel, and, uh, they got his name wrong. They got the wrong act. <laughs> he said, please welcome Alexander Lincoln. And it was like, actually, I'm the other one. So in the sense of the, during the press stuff, yes, it can get a bit confusing. But on set, it was actually quite straightforward. Uh, how did you come to cast them? How hard was it to find your, your cast? I mean, to start with, it's a very big cast. You know, there's about 15 speaking parts, and we're essentially casting, you know, a lot of people from from a rugby team. So you've got to have to find ways to differentiate all these characters from each other, whether that's through accent, through look. Um, but we put out a casting call. Bear in mind, we did, we, you know, we're a small budget film. We didn't have a huge sort of, you know, casting directors, or you know, we had to do this ourselves. So we put out a casting call on a couple of, sort of casting websites like Mandy.com, saying, you know, this is an LGBT film. Rugby experience would be amazing, but not essential. And we were very lucky that quite a lot of people actually had played rugby at some point in the past so you know we we uh, we found our, our alexander lincoln our mark first and then we did some chemistry reads with other potential warrens and actually henry's as well well henry's the character in the film who's sort of mark's best friend who's sort of it's an unrequited love story here he's in love with his best friend but mark just doesn't fancy him back and it's oh, that kind it's of heartbreaking oh, we've all oh, been oh, henry we've all been back. henry certainly yeah. have you know writing that I was i was definitely drawing from many experiences right <laughs> Same with adam my co-writer you know we, we i think we've all been through that but so we did chemistry reads with potential Henrys and potential, you know, Marks and Warrens, uh, just to see how they would sort of, you know, vibe off each other. And then we sort of found our cast of lead cast and we were like, okay, right, these guys are great. And then obviously we had to do the rugby stuff, but we did a little boot camp before the shoot uh, to bring everyone up to speed a bit because some people had never played before. Some people just need a bit of refreshing. Right. But I mean, the expectation of what they had to do was quite, you know, relatively low because, you know, we'd, we're choreographing a lot of the more complex rugby stuff. You know, it's more, can they pass the ball convincingly? Can they just look like they belong? You know, they know what they're doing uh, or, or, you know, enough to fake it kind of thing. Cause you know, we, uh, we filled all the, um, the extras with people I know who actually actual rugby players. So uh, there's a lot of real rugby happening in front of the camera and, you know, that's protecting the actors and making them, you know, lifting them up in a way to make them look more, make me more competent than they probably, probably are in their abilities. But um, we were very lucky that the cast was so, you know, really got stuck in. Cause it's a, it's a tricky film. You know, there's a lot of, it's a there's a lot of stuff they had to do you know getting cold under rain machines you know on, on winter's days and you know having to sort of you know do the sporting stuff as well as sort of, you know the really heavy hitting acting stuff so well we're very lucky with the cast yeah how did you know your two guys that that are at the heart of the affair had the chemistry that you wanted did did you bring them into audition together and kind of yeah yes, as I said, we, we, did, we did chemistry reads you know with mark and warren we put them together in, in an audition to see uh, you know run a scene and see how they went and then we were like hey this is the pairing and then same we did the same for for mark and henry to see you know do, would they have that sort of friendship dynamic and and will hurl when he came in for henry you know it, it was immediately obvious that it was him you know and actually alex we'd already cast him at that point and so when we sent will out of the room you know to discuss it alex stayed in the room with us and he went oh he's very good isn't he i was like yeah he's like i think he's even better than me i think i'm gonna upstage me and i was like you've got your lead actor so you know being worried about being upstage I think you know you're on to a winner, really. And Will Hurl was amazing, and, and you know Ali King for Warren. You know they just had such good chemistry in the audition room, and uh, you know, and, and also you know an audition room is, is always a snapshot of what it could be. You know, this is before they had time to actually work together, so we knew that it was only going to grow from there. So it was really good. So we've talked about why you wanted to set it in the in the world of of this this rugby league. Why did you want to explore the issues in the film, which which is about relationships and uh, affairs, deceit? Um, what was that? Because that, to me, is what the movie's about. The, the, what I took away from it is when when a relationship starts with a deceit, it's hard to get it back to being not like that. You know what I mean? I, that's yeah. well, That was what I took away from it. What made you want to write about those kind of uh, themes? 
And I just think there are very sort of contemporary themes that happen within the gay community that we kind of don't always talk about. I mean, you know, like open relationships, uh, monogamy, infidelity. I mean, they're things that we all have stories about. You know, it happens on a day-to-day basis in our community. And, you know, in fact, we've had a lot of bit of backlash over that. People are saying, oh, is this the representation we really need? And it's like, well, if you don't want a mirror held up to the community, you know, that's that's fine. But that this this happens. This is reality. You know, we do these things in our community. But they're also sort of – we try to do it in a very non-judgmental way. You know? Right. Very much present the actions as they happen without leading the audience down a sort of pre, you know, predetermined judgment. We, we, you know, yes, these characters are essentially having an affair, but the love they find for each other is real and it's heartbreaking and it's beautiful. So, you know, these things, these beautiful things can happen in, in deceitful ways. And, and it's the complexity and the, the areas of gray within that. And, the, you know, uh, the, and I definitely wouldn't want to kind of, sort of, you know, make a moral statement about that. And I think, you know, we present these events in the film and the audience can very much decide what they think. I mean, when uh, there's a scene in the film, sorry for spoilers, where, Mark and Warren go to meet Mark's parents for Christmas. Right, I and wanted both, to talk about that. It was so interesting. Both the parents give conflictory advice. You know, one says, you know, uh, Leopard Run should never change his spots, and, you know, a relationship born from some deception will only breed more. Right. Whereas you know, the father says, you know, you have to kind of just live life and enjoy every moment, and you can't always worry about, you know, who you hurt along the way because, you know, you could you could waste your life not, you know, not not living your life if you if you overthink about it and always worry about those sorts of things. And, and that those two pieces of conflictory advice, I think, hopefully say to the audience, it's up to you guys. You've got to decide what you think about this affair and, and these characters, you know, because we, we're not going to tell you as a film, as filmmakers, how to think. And I think, you know, uh, a, a lot of, I'd say, you know, a controversial view, I think a lot of Hollywood films nowadays like to be quite preachy about certain concepts. And I think, you know, there's the whole sort of, you know, get woke, go broke sort of thing, which I think is a bit of a silly sort of phrase, to be honest. But there's it's, there's something in there in the sense that Hollywood is, is uh, has a habit of, sort of telling the audience how to think. And I think you, uh, true storytelling, you know, all the sort of mythic, you know, classic stories, Greek legends and things, they very much portray these tragic characters, but without a, a moral leaning. And you as an audience decide what the, what you're going to derive from that story, what lesson you're going to learn from it. But it's up to the audience and that, that, that having the audience participate in that, that process is, you know, of, of the moral learning or whatever it is, whatever you're going to de- derive from witnessing these characters' experiences is quite important uh, to, you know, to be that kind of that element of storytelling. Yeah, and my my favorite things are the things that are complicated like that. Like we just had the White Lotus and Air here. I don't know if you saw that miniseries. I yet, so, so I have to, I, it's my list of things to watch. It's so good, but I was like, I'm not sure how I feel about all of this, but I'm so into it. Like, and 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 previously I'd just seen the the Aaron Sorkin play To Kill a Mockingbird, and it was very oh, well mounted and all that. But I knew exactly what he wanted me to think at every moment. I knew. Like, and it's that kind of story, but I, but there was no ambiguity for me, at least in that experience. And I like things where you're, I'm not sure what I think, but I'm in, you know? I, I, think, I think when you spoon feed an audience, they can feel that they can feel the spoon. Do you know what I mean? That they, yeah. they know that they're just, that they're, they're, they're not being led along an intellectually challenging path. Whereas when you tell an audience, you know, you're, you're making them have to think. It's funny because, you know, uh, to, to relate this back to rugby in a way, when you coach people, you, we're, we're told, uh, you know, when you do your coach training, you do this questioning sort of mentality where you always ask questions, say, so why do we do this, guys? And why do you think this happens? And it's that constant asking of questions which maintains engagement. If you just tell people, you stand and talk at them, go, these are the, you know, these are the laws of rugby, or just explain to them, it's less engaging than if you try to draw out questions and draw out answers from people. And I think this is the same in filmmaking. You know, if you, if we don't tell you how to think, you're there going, I'm not sure what I think about this. And it's way more engaging than being preached to. And yeah. I think, you know, we've tried to tap into that on the film. 
Yeah, you certainly did. That's certainly what I came away with. The mother is a great example. Mark's mother, when you first meet her, she seems kind of body and like, I'm up for everything and I'm not judgmental and you do you and I know you're having this affair and welcome to the house. And then later she's like, mm, there's some other stuff going on here that resonates with these themes. And I found that very poignant. Like she kind of, she kind of moved me, that, that actress in, in that, in that um, sort of second half of her kind of, uh, scenes. Yeah, I mean, so I'm Mary Lincoln. I mean, it was again. If talking about sort of being almost fated for her to play that role, you know, she's yeah. the same name as, as the actor who's playing her son. So we were like, oh, it's, it's fate. And she had an amazing addition as well. But she brings such a warmth and depth to that character because she, you know, she's kind of this amazing, sassy kind of every gay man we wishes their mother was like. Right, this, you know, she kind of had that. And like, oh, history, but, like, his parents are rolling with all of it. Yeah. Yeah, but there is a depth to her because you know she has essentially gone through uh, what sort of Mark is going through now in, in her in her youth, and it's a kind of this is what could happen potentially. Right. You know, if Mark continues down this path, and, and and also the fact that he's sort of a, oh no, spoilers, he's sort of a product of of infidelity himself. Yeah, I mean, there's so much stuff like that that's quite kind of interesting. You know, that, but. Um, you know, eating his father's son. I, I don't feel like I've got too much to say about sort of sins of the fathers type thing, but it was sort of loosely in there. But um, it's just more of an interesting point. But yeah, she's she's she has a little depth to her, and you know, and I think uh, it, it, you know, it, especially for for sort of characters who you know are these kind of lives in life, a bit like Warren, really. You know, the, the, the bravado covers up the weakness and covers up the vulnerabilities, and it's it's. I think she's lovely that she, you know, in such a short time that she's on the screen, she sort of gets to explore those sorts of things. Yeah, she she got me. There was a moment where I'm like, oof. Um, the title, In From The Side, is that a, a term in rugby or is that... that cause it I, is, it, yes. It resonates with the affair aspect of the story, obviously. Well, I wanted to have... Uh, when I was designing kind of what the title would be, I kind of wanted to have a, a term that would be both a sports term but something that could be applicable to you know, other things. And In From The Side is an illegal move in rugby. Um, but I think it's also kind of slightly irrelevant whether you know that or not. But, but for a rugby audience, they'll know immediately that it's a rugby film, which is, which is one thing. But also sort of coming in from the side and the existing you know, affair and you know, a, a third party coming in, disrupting things. But also because the title is slightly ab- you know, ambiguous and the, the grammar is a little strange, it's, it draws intrigue. You kind of want to know what that means. So it kind of draws you into the film a bit more by sort of being slightly ambiguous. I think. So I thought we, we're, you know, there were some sort of more basic titles like Off Your Feet, you know, Offside. And I thought, oh, it just it sounds like a, a sort of cheap sports film, but Infant Side had that kind of slightly class, classier sound to it. The sound, a bit like Call Me By Your Name. It's that kind of slightly kind of um, maybe a bit more pretentious, but you know, I, that's why that's, that's why I went with the title. I, thought yeah, I, th- I think it's work. a perfect title. I think it's good. Um, so you do a lot of different things on this movie. It was obviously your passion project. Um, you did the soundtrack. You're a musician as well. How many yeah, songs they- did you write? You wrote songs for it as well. Uh, they, uh, I think there was, I think there was, but it's about so sort of five, four or five. Uh, well, because some some songs are just sort of background piece of music in nightclub scenes and right. stuff, but um, about four, there's about four or five original tracks in this, including like a sort of a vintage Christmas track. Because <laughs> we originally wanted to have there's a Christmas scene in the film, and we wanted to have this sort of uh, Motown, very famous Christmas track, but it would cost us literally the entire budget of the film right. to license this track. So, but I really wanted something like a contemporary love story against this kind of timeless Christmas classic. So I went and wrote one. <laughs> And recorded it with so the, you know, the correct 60s, 70s kind of like recording techniques and stuff to make something that people would think, oh, that sounds like a track that I've heard before, but I actually haven't. But, you know, just doing the whole score, it was about an hour and 20 minutes of music for the whole film, which is quite a lot, you know, it's a lot of music in the movie. 
Um, and it took a good, what, six or seven months, really. And that, that was my lockdown, you know, during the pandemic. You know, I, I lost my job like a lot of people did. And, you know, the, in the UK, you could freeze your mortgage payments, you know, on your house for eight months while the pandemic was going on. So I did that, which meant I didn't have so many outgoings. And I just spent literally seven or eight months finishing the edit of the film and writing the music. And it was, you know, uh, it's very rare, I think, to be able to... Um, be in a position where you can write the music to your own film. Uh, that you know, the, the, I've, I shot the film as well, so it's you know, I'd written it, directed it, I'd and you were the DP. The you were the you, yeah. you held the camera. So I, I'd, I'd lit, I'd lit and shot the films. I, it was exactly the kind of, but to be able to write the music as well was such a, a nice sort of. Very rarely do you get that kind of sense of authorship over the work, you know, and the story you're telling that you get to also do the music. And it was, I, I, mean, I don't, you know, whether I get to do that again, I don't know. So I really wanted to put it all out on this one to try and make it, you know, everything I could make it to be really, and really sort of put a lot of effort into to tell the story, to, to craft the mood of the film through the music as well. So you shot it pre-pandemic and were able to work on it during the pandemic in terms of post-production. Yeah, we shot in, uh, I think it was January and February 2019. So it's a two-month shoot, uh, right. yeah, pre-pandemic. And then... Uh, and then I think we, I maybe I'd underestimated quite how long the little post-production would do on a sort of two-hour-plus movie. Uh, so the edit took me a bit longer because well, I, I had a full-time job as well. So it was pretty much more evenings and weekends that I was doing all the work on it. And then the pandemic hit, and actually for me it was the best thing ever because right. like, you're actually, like, oh, this is awful. I'm editing, I'm editing, I'm like, yeah, so awful. Oh no! I mean, I'm, I'm, obviously it was awful for many people, but sure. I'm one of the rare people actually it was quite beneficial for. But I was to feel, feel guilty saying that, but it was. Yeah. It's true. What do you do for your? What was your full-time job at that time? So I work in visual effects, so I'm oh, a visual right effects artist. I do a lot of effects for other people's films and other people, you know, TV shows. Um, worked on a number of sort of big things, but I mean, it, it's a uh, you know, for me, it's quite run of the mill now. You know, I've been doing it for about ten, twelve years, so it's it, but it, it pays the bills and it, it definitely helped fund fund the film. You know, because we it was the whole film was sort of, we had a Kickstarter campaign to fund uh, a portion of it, but the rest of it was you know essentially self funded. I had to get a, a big loan out to pay for the whole thing, and a lot of that was funded by my day job. So I've been lucky that it's been you know it's been work, worked out. Um, there's visual effects in the movie, and I saw I think it's on your Instagram. You showed some of them, and I was like, oh. I didn't even realize that was an effect. It looked so real, like a scoreboard. Well, that's, thing. I mean, that, 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 that's ultimately the like a lot of things, yeah. like editing. All these, you know, you've done your job well when people don't realize it's there. But you know, because for a low budget film, you know, it's very hard to nail all these things correctly. You know, on on the day, like we've never had enough people. Like for the crowd sequences, there's never enough people. So being able to sort of duplicate them and yeah. make you know, fill out crowd more, you know. But it's I kind of wanted to make that little sort of featurette video just so people realized actually. You know, there was, there was about 180 visual effects shots in the movie because people just wouldn't realize. No, you would think they would. It was, be. A, it was a slight flex, you know, just to be like, oh, I also did this. But you know, it was more just to show the work they'd gone into it, so people realized that actually, you know, it, we didn't, it wasn't all shot on, on the day how we wanted it to, be. and a lot of it was was done in post, and just to sort of show show that off a bit. So this is obviously a passion project for you. You do all of these different roles on it. It's a big leap of faith to raise the money. Did you get, were there times where you got discouraged? How did you keep going through? Because it's, it's a slog to bring something like this all the way past the finish line. How was that process for you? It's definitely like climbing a mountain. I mean, you kind of have to break it down to smaller bits. But, it, you know, like anything, I think a fine filmmaker who doesn't get discouraged by a project at least once at some point. And it is a constant sort of, uh, you know, during the writing stage, you think, oh, this is going to be amazing. And then when you sort of start shooting, you don't have the budget. You think, oh, maybe this isn't going to be as good as I think. And then you start seeing the rushes and go, oh, my God, this is really good. You constantly, this is a roller coaster of, I love it, I hate it, I love it, I hate it. And and even, you know, right to the end, you think, are oh, people going to like this? And, and I think there was a moment where... um I was doing the sound mix up in Elstree Studios in North London, and it was the first time I'd actually seen the film projected onto a 10-meter, you know, huge screen. I'd only rewatched really it in my room or my, my sort of, you know, my computer before that. And watching it with the big sort of Dolby sort of mix and everything, I was like, 
oh god it's like i said to the sound guy i said it's like a real movie he went it is a real movie and i thought oh god it was the first time that he had a tweet to me that we were making a movie that was going to you know that could end up, end up in cinemas and we're so lucky that it did you know that we were uh, theatrical distribution in so many countries and we had a huge sort of theatrical release in the uk which was amazing you know i never would have dreamed that we would have done that maybe sort of in like, your wildest dreams you think oh yeah maybe this will get to cinemas but you never sort of think that that will become a reality you know for a, such a small film so it was an absolute dream when it when you know we we got picked up by you know strand and Verve in the UK, uh, and we've you know getting out in cinemas. It's brilliant. What surprised you about the reaction once it was in cinemas? Um, I mean, all of it's a surprise. You know, you, you never know how long it's going to react. I think you know, and the positive reaction we've had has been. Uh, I didn't realize we'd, we'd get quite this sort of outpouring of positive response that we did. You know, you think you know, I suppose as a filmmaker, you think critically about all the you know, and people have criticized bits about it before. And I think you know, people think we're trying to. Um, validate uh, or, or glorify sort of infidelity, which I think is quite interesting because a lot of people say that when they've not seen the film, they just watch the trailer and go, oh, it's about them cheating. I'm not going to watch that. And it's like, well, what's the film? Because it definitely, right. it it definitely doesn't is a cautionary tale. But it's it's really resonated with a lot of people. I think I think because it's, um, I'm quite blasé about the fact that, you know, there's a, you know, the no homophobia, no coming out, and the fact that these characters are completely, that their gay life is completely normalized on screen. Right. And, you know, the fact that, Parents completely accept Mark, and there's no question of that. I maybe because that's kind of how you know I'm very lucky that I've had that in my life. You know, my parents have been very accepting. I've never really experienced much homophobic hardship. I live in London, which is quite a metropolitan, very very gay friendly town, and I think watching, especially for you know parts of the world where that isn't the case, that watching that screen, that that seeing that kind of representation really it really hits them in the chest because it's like wow, I've never seen myself on screen portrayed this way in a, in a way that's not isn't my life so difficult? You know, to see the hope that. You know, some people, you know, I want to live a life like what I'm seeing on screen. And I think that surprised me. And some of the messages we have, I mean, not to sort of brag about it, because it's, it's amazing. But, you know, we have, so, I mean, literally about 20 mess- 10 to 20 messages, people on Instagram and Facebook a, a day still from people who've seen the film, who, who've been touched by it. And these are just like, these aren't kind of, oh, I like the film. These are like little mini essays that people write about where, how, what it's meant to them. And it's like, that's amazing. I mean, I can't, you know, how can I, how can I say that that, you know, how, how can that ever become normal? It's just amazing to, to read every single one of those. And I try to reply to them as much as I can. But, it, you know, I don't think Adam, my co-writer, and I really thought how much this would actually resonate with people. We, 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 we were on something special, but we didn't realize it would have quite the sort of the impact on, on the gate, well, on the people who watch the film as, as it has. So that's just been, it's just been wonderful, really. When you look back on the shooting of it 10, 20 years from now, what's the moment you'll always remember? Oh, so many. I mean, uh, so many, so many. I mean, it was, it was a constant. Tell me a few. Yeah. Tell me a few. Um, I'd say, I mean, the France shoot was beautiful. You know, we had, we had a limited uh, section of the crew got to go out and we, we shot on location in, in France, in, in the French Alps. And that it, it snowed constantly, and which was in some ways, it was the most snow we'd had in years there. And, um, and, it, the, the van got trapped up the hill. We had to dig it out several times. Like, it, it was a nightmare, but it was beautiful. And I think the cast really didn't have to act very much because they were just in this winter wonderland. And it was just the, the sort of a beautiful little sequence in the film to shoot. I'd say the, another one would be the um, the the rugby match in the middle of the film, where it's like they're, they're playing in a storm uh, with some really heavy rain conditions. And that was, uh, I think, for everyone involved, it was a really cold and challenging day. But it was really. Uh, it, 
it, you know, it, it's one of the main sequences in the film. I think everyone stands out in, the, in people's minds when they when they leave the cinema. Think, oh, that, remember, do you remember that sequence? And it is like kind of this medieval. If all that's missing is the the clash of swords. And it, if you had that in the sound, mm-hmm. the sound sort of bed of it, it right. would literally be a medieval battle because it's like going to war. And I really wanted to kind of portray that. You know, this sort of um, it's these characters essentially going to, into battle, and that's what rugby is. You know, it's kind of one of the closest things that you can do to go to battle, a short of going to battle. Um, and I think that came out really well, but it was a real challenge for everyone because it was really cold, and, but everyone really bonded over it. And actually, it, I think that was the point where everyone really became like a rugby team because, the, you know, the family of the crew and the, the cast were, were like a rugby team in a way. You know, we're doing this challenging, difficult thing all together and bonding over it. And that was a really special kind of shoot. And it, I think, you know, the sequence came out really well. And, um, but, yeah, it was, that was a big challenge. I, think it was, I always remember the, the challenges more than the, right. the, the easy. A bit like anything, it's when you overcome a struggle, you you come out the other side having grown from the experience. So I think the struggles, a bit like rugby, you know, they're always the things that are the most memorable. I think. Well, with with smaller budget movies, sometimes you're getting kicked out of your location, or there's some crazy thing that happens on the day, and you have to kind of scramble. So that's all oh, part of time. it. Yeah. Um, yeah. We have so many stories like that. <laughs> how did you approach the love scenes with your actors? How did you talk about that so, with them? How did you rehearse it? So uh, there's within so one sort of really uh, very you know, in- intimate love scene in the middle of the film. Uh, we, we sort of try and hold off showing too much. You know, I think we very much went for the case that it was a uh, we show love scene if it was um, you know relevant to the story and if it would sort of further the story. We wouldn't just have gratuitous love stories. So the, the point in the middle of the film where I think the characters really kind of fall for each other, we have you know quite an intimate, well depicted sort of uh, you know love scene. And the script is very descriptive. You know, if you if anyone reads the screenplay, the you know exactly what happens on screen is described beat by beat. You know, so we very much treat it like a choreography. You know, we would uh, it was a close set. It was just me, the two actors, and the sound guy. I mean, we had such a good rapport. I mean, a lot. You know, there's a lot of talk obviously now of intimacy coordinators, but you know, back in 2019, it wasn't such a big thing. You know, it was a couple of years ago when we shot this, and obviously being a small budget you know film, we couldn't always afford all these sort of extra things. But we, I think, essentially what an intimacy coordinator will do is they they have a good rapport with the two. actors and have that sort of rapport with the director but because we got on so well you know the, three, the, the two lead actors and myself we kind of had that rapport already and we kind of we talked about it in advance like what do you what are you comfortable doing what are you not and the two actors are so familiar with each other they were so they knew each other so well they, they had that good like uh, dialogue with each other um i think also you know when you look at a, a love scene on film it looks way more intimate than it actually is when you're there on the day you know it's very much like okay right go position one okay right go back to that go go back to the, this part of the scene all right hit yeah we'll do this shot okay done next bit it's so artificial and constructed but it's a testament to the actors to make it look convincing and you know then you editing editing together and stuff to make it look way more kind of passionate than it actually is but it's it's very kind of staged and it's very kind of stop start and uh, but we had that good dialogue with the actors and they felt very comfortable and you know they were comfortable with each other so it, you know we were very so sort of sensitive to make sure that everyone felt okay doing what they had to do I like it. Um, you do a lot of different things, obviously, in the movie. We talked about that. Have you always been sort of multifaceted in that way? Have you always wanted to do this and then, oh, I'm also into that? And, like, has that always been yeah, part of your personality? I, I think, um, yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, I, I, I love creativity in its raw form rather than just one specific discipline. I've, I'm always looking for, like, oh, I'd love to give that a go. And I'm always trying out different things. And, and it's that what, what, what's great about movie making, I think, is it's a, it's a collection of multiple disciplines coming together and working in tangent. And so for me, it was great. I was like, I'll get to do a bit of music, I'll get to do a bit of cinematography. And actually, in the closing credits sequence, like, you know, I work in visual effects and animation. I really wanted to do an animated uh, title sequence or closing credit sequence. But I kind of have done so many different styles of animation throughout my career. I wanted to try something I'd never done before because you know, I love just trying new things. Sure. Um, 
got, I, I found this uh, beautiful sort of like technique of oil painting frame by frame. <laughs> So I did this sort of oil, a hand painting. So you're oil, oil painting on the on the yeah, movie. But, but literally, so I, I I did this sort of 140 oil paintings uh, for this sort of closing credit sequence. This sort of beautiful animation, and I looked at ways of doing that digitally. But there's no, you know, when you watch it on a huge screen, you see all the all the brush marks and stuff. It's there's no comparison to doing it for real. And and I, it, I spent a month just literally just doing that. But that got me into oil painting, and now I love painting, and I just love to try new disciplines. I mean, that's just, if for me, I, I I get I kind of I love trying new things, and I love trying to push my disciplines in each one. You know. Uh, I mean, through the music, I was made to play piano from a very young age by my parents, but grudgingly at the time, but I'm very happy they did. But, you know, as a result, I've got the music thing that I can do, and I love sort of writing music, and actually it's something I love to do a bit more of, really. And, you know, it's I love trying new things. I love photography, all these sort of different disciplines, and, you know, I get excited very much by just different creative fields. I think it's great. What was the biggest challenge throughout the whole process? Did you ever get discouraged? Like, what kept you going? All the time. Oh, I mean, I just, there's so which challenge you want. I mean, there were yeah. so many, there were so many different challenges throughout the film. You know, like funding it, like halfway through shoot, going, I think we've run out of money. I've got to get another loan now. <laughs> you know, like uh, just trying to find the locations, trying to make things work with what we had. You know, I think. Uh, I mean, I'd say one of the trickier things, which I think actually we sort of elegantly managed to fix, was we never had enough extras for the kind of the, the way we'd written it. Right. You know, we have these scenes, and you know, even on a, you know, a rugby pitch, you've got 30 people there, and we never really had 30 players on a pitch at any one time. But it's trying to sort of hide that through the cinematography, and you know, all the nightclub scenes, for instance, we shot those in the nightclubs during the day when you know we had free access to them. We got the lighting design to come in, so it looked just like the nightclub in the evening, but we could get clean dialogue because there's no sound. But we didn't have enough people to fill a nightclub with hundreds of people. We had about 10 extras. Right. I've been <laughs> so, there. I've been on that so movie. We, yeah, so exactly. Like, you line up people in front of the camera so they're blocking out space. And then, and then you go, okay, right, we've seen this person wearing this. In, it's in their face in this shot. So when we change angle, we, we dress them up something else and show the back of their head and use them for, as an extra. And it was just a line of people standing in front of the camera with, in an empty room. But through the camera, it looked like a busy room. And you just keep doing that every time we change, change uh, camera. And we do that so much throughout the film. You know, there, there's so many challenges that we have in terms of trying to sort of shoot it at a level, you know, trying to make it look like a budget that yeah. bigger than what we actually had, you know. So that, that was always tragic. And I'd love to have, you know, an, on future projects to work with an editor because it was, it is difficult when you're trying to second guess your own opinion when you, you've edited something, but you kind of want to have that rapport with another editor where you can kind of go, you know, what do you think of the scene? And you can have that back and forth and you argue over your ideas so that the best ideas float to the surface. When you're doing that on your own, it's kind of challenging because you, you're kind of just going, well, what do I think? And you, right. know, you don't have to kind of challenge you and push you. And I mean, I was lucky I had that with the writing process with Adam, you know, uh, my co-writer, Adam Silver. We kind of fought over ideas in the script so that only the good ideas kind of survived that process, you yeah. know. But I wished we, I'd had that for other things, but because, I mean, I, I think it came out okay, but you're always second-guessing yourself, and that's never fun because you're going to think, oh, is this good? I'm like, you know, is this the right direction to go with this? And that was the, kind of the biggest challenge, I think, for me, really. Who do you relate to most in the movie? Mark? Um... Lots of characters, really. So my doorbell's going. I don't know why. But That's all right. If you want to go get it, you can. <laughs> no, no, no it's fine. It okay. It's too early. The one is no one expected yeah. this time. Um, the uh, oh, it's really not. It stop now. Um, I think all the characters, really. I mean, I think we, there's so many different sort of archetypal experiences that many of the characters go through. That um, you know, it's it's. Uh, like Henry Finster, that we've all gone through a kind of Henry experience where we love someone who doesn't love us back. I think, you know, Mark as well, you know, he's a kind of relatable character for a lot of people who, you know, who's in this dysfunctional relationship and he wants, you know, he's looking, there's something missing in his life and he's looking for like something to kind of, you know, reignite that passion in him. And that's the, that's Warren that he finds, you know, I think, uh, and Pinky's his partner calls it his pretend rugby team. 
His partner calls yeah, him the pretend rugby team. I'm like, he's not good enough yeah. for Mark. Exactly. Like, I, he's a complex character in the sense that I think they probably had a, a passionate relationship in the early days, but Mark found rugby and he's resentful of this kind of new love in his life that's right. this, this sport. And he just constantly belittles him. And I just think, you know, the audience go, leave him, Mark. You yeah. know, like, he, he doesn't respect you, you know, but he, he loves Mark, but he doesn't love the, the thing that he's into. You know, which is in contrast to Warren's boyfriend, who's part of the team, which is, you know, and the, the fact that those two relationships are so different makes it quite interesting, you know, because Warren's boyfriend is part of the club. And I guess that's maybe what Mark wants. You know, he, yeah. he wants to have someone like, like, like the relationship that has Warren. But, but Warren and John's relationship is, is sort of troubled as well. But we sort of try and keep that a bit vague. You know, I've got ideas about why they are the way they are. But we need that lot up to the audience to kind of decide what's going on behind the closed doors because it's all shown essentially through Mark's perspective. So he's not going to see yeah. – you know, we, we're not going to see behind the closed doors of the other characters. We only see it through what Mark sees. I love Mark. I love Alexander Lincoln. I just think he's wonderful. And I think for your next crowdfunding, if you could just have him look at people in that way, I think they would pay I would pay hundred dollars to have him look at me for like just like 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 he looks at the uh, Warren in the Carnival. When you were growing up, were there movies that that spoke to you as a as a young gay kid? Because I know this movie's going to resonate uh, for young people too. In some ways, it's a shame because um, one of the things a lot of people said when they've seen our film was, "I wish this was out when I was younger." And right. I, I kind of. I, Sherwood, who plays the, the sort of team captain in the in the film, he's involved in inclusive sport, but through cricket and football. So actually, you know, even though he plays, in the, you know, he's actually a part of a, an inclusive sport world as well. And he said that how much impact this would probably would have had had he seen this when he was younger. And, and I think the problem is, I'd love to say, oh yes, this film was great when I, you know, had an impact on me as a gay man when I was younger. But there just weren't many of them. You know, I mean, I remember Brokeback Mountain when that came out. I was like, oh my god, this. But like, that's such a now. Now I mean, it's, it's a beautiful time. Yeah, film, a, but the feel good movie it, of the summer. Yeah. You know, exactly. It's yeah. You know, it, it's 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 depressing and it's 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 miserable, but in a beautiful way. But right. but you know, that, but that's all we had. We was kind of you know, we just clung on to these crumbs of representation. For, you know, and, and sort of absolutely didn't have anything that was portraying a, a, a gay life being normal and, and you know and trouble free. It was always oh doom and gloom. But at least it was something. You know, but I. Yeah, it's difficult. I'd love to pick out a film to say, you know, oh, that was the one that made me think, oh, yeah. I mean, Priscilla Coming in the Desert maybe is a little bit closer, you know, but again, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a very specific, it's, it's a drag thing, yeah. which, you know, uh, much as I love drag as much as anyone, it's not really my sort of thing. Right. It's, you know, it's I've ever done or related to as much. It's, you know, I mean, there was never a film that really set, you know, represented, you know, that's why I tried to make this film. So it's sort of, this, this is the kind of film I wish I'd seen when I was younger. And I hope that other people sort of, you know, get the same thing from it, really. I love it. What was it like the first time you watched it with an audience? Where were you? Uh, so the very first time was the cast and crew screening. So it's slightly kind of distorted view because everyone had kind of, knew, you know, been involved right. in the film. But it's still for them, it's the first time they'd seen it. And I knew I wanted the cast to see it before we did the world premiere in the BFI in London because I thought it wouldn't be what they'd imagined it would be. Because, you know, on set, it's, it was such a ragtag thing. You know, I, th- I thought they probably had a view that it would be, you know, what it is, and but it wouldn't have been as, you know, as moving or whatever it was. You know, that, that I, And I wanted them to have that moment to process it where they weren't then, you know, in the middle of the press and everyone asking for their opinions. So they could take a week to process, internalise it before having to do the kind of press junket stuff. Um, so that, but that was amazing just to watch the cast and crew screening, you know, and with the cast and stuff and then come afterwards and see their faces being all buzzing. But the world premiere, we had, it was about 450 people at the BFI, um, uh, you know, as part of the BFI Flare Festival. And that was just like the, the, the moments where things are funny, the audience erupts, you know, and in like to the point where you miss some of the following lines because the laughter's nice. still going on. I think 
but seeing the comedy moments on a, in a big audience was really special. It kind of made me actually have an appreciation for watching comedies in, or any kind of, you know, uh, like horror or any kind of, you know, large interaction type, um, you know, emotional response films with a big audience because it's, you know, it, the atmosphere of the room completely adds to the film that you're watching. You know, it, it's so different to watching something at home. And it definitely made me a big advocate of, uh, so just saying, you know, try and go to the cinema more because right. I'm like anyone. I streamed a lot. I still yeah. do, you know. So going back to the cinema since doing that, because I sort of, when you see it, when you're, when it's your own film, you kind of go, oh yeah, it kind of just twit, you know, if it, it, it's like switching your mind goes off and think actually there's something really special about this, but it's amazing, you know, and you can feel the, in the tense moments, the room tightens up. There's almost like a sound associated with the room. Like you can feel people clenching in their seats during the, the tense bits and, and, uh, yeah, and, and just looking, looking around the room at the end and just seeing people like wiping their eyes, it's like, oh my god, people are actually, you know, crying. It's like we've, you know, I just think that's the hardest thing to do is to try and make an audience cry. And it was amazing to see literally people coming out of the cinema going, like just wiping their eyes. Wow, I mean, like, yeah, it was it was amazing to watch it with a big audience. Who's been your most surprising fan? Have there been women that reach out to you? Some, yeah, I think. Um, I mean, it's all, I mean, obviously, gay men are going to sort of, you know, it, it's a story that's obviously going to resonate with gay men. But I've been surprised, yes, people who you wouldn't expect. I think we, we screened at a festival in uh, in the, the north of France, Dinar, which was you know, an amazing festival, way more prestigious than I think, I think I'd realised when I was getting into it. I, did, you know, we, I brought one outfit and I realised I needed way more sort of, you know, fancy outfits for all the different things they'd planned for us. Um, but when we went, it was a sold-out screening, and I went in with my partner, and it was a sea of kind of like essentially grey hair. You know, it was like people in their 50s and 60s and 70s, uh, you know, which is very different to, you know, sort of straight older couples, essentially. Right. It was not the younger gay audience that we sort of used to seeing in the cinemas. And I thought, oh, God, how is this going to play? And they loved it. And the questions, the questions they asked at the end were really sort of astute, really interesting. That they, I think, you know, because it's a cultural sort of French audience, they're going to relate to the love story, you know. Uh, and I think the fact that they didn't really see it as a, the fact that it's a gay love story be any different to a, a sort of, you know, a, a conventional heterose- heterosexual kind of relationship. They just bought into the love story and they just had questions about, you know, why didn't they get together? Well, spoilers, but you know, all these sorts of things. And and it, I was just surprised that it resonated with essentially the opposite demographic of what it really, if you think about it, what it could be have been designed to, to appeal to, you know, uh, a much older straight sort of, you know, uh, audience. And and it worked for them as well. And that was quite surprising. But, I mean, a lovely, obviously, I'm so grateful that, you know, they, they loved it and that they kind of responded well to it. But, you know, I wasn't expecting that at all. I love that. One of my parents' friends watched it. Yeah, she's amazing. She drove like about two hours to to find a cinema in Scotland in a small like little coastal town that was screening it because it was in the art house cinema, and so she had this amazing drive over the over the hills and the, the you know the locks to see it. And she said, "I was so worried Henry was going to meet a sticky end. You know, he was going to die by the end because the you know the alcoholism stuff. She just thought I'm waiting for him. He's going to he's going to commit suicide or something." And I was like, "It's so interesting that we're so conditioned and ready to see gay characters sort of die right. or to like." And it's and I said because there's nothing there's nothing in the film. I mean, I suppose when you hearing her say that, you can sort of see how maybe the the reading of the some things he does might lead to that. But there was no nothing that was signpost that he was ever suicidal. It was never any consideration during the writing process that right. he might you know be a suicide character. We never tried to mislead the audience in that way. I just it wasn't even consideration. But it's you can't control what other people will bring to the table with their experience and, and they just see char- gay characters as potentially suicidal because that's all film has been for 50 years. You know, the Hayes Code, all this sort of history of, you know, you can't positively show gay characters on screen, so they have to either die or be villains. And, you know, and that's going to have a, a cultural heritage and, a, and a, that the foundation of which people's experience of gay, uh, you know, the gay existence is going to be through that lens of having seen all that media for the last 50 years. So it's interesting. I thought at the end, Mark... My hero, who I adore, 
um, played by my future boyfriend, <laughs> Alexander Lincoln. Um, he has to figure out what kind of guy he wants to be. Like yeah. he, he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to figure out how to fight society. He doesn't have to figure out how to deal with all this oppression. He has to decide who he wants to be. And I think I think that's powerful. I think all the characters, I think in life, all of us, we, I think the biggest struggle other than coming out, and really coming out is, is a part of this bigger thing, which sure. is who, who are we as our authentic selves? What is our authentic self? What does that look like? What do I want it to be? And what can I make it into? And you know, coming out is, is, a, is a tiny part of that. But it's not the whole. And, you know, and actually, once you come out, you then got to go, right, what do I want to do with my life? Who, who do I want to be? What kind of person do I want to be? And yeah. that's a much bigger It's more relatable to everyone because not everyone will you know, come out, but everyone has to figure out who they want to be. What's next for you? Do you have your next uh, film in mind? I have a few, actually. Right. <laughs> of, course, of course you do. And you're going to crochet shar- <laughs> scarves for everyone that goes to the movie. gets a free scarf that you crocheted. And maybe one person will get an oil painting. You know, I've, I've, never done, I've never done knitting. And actually, something I'm, maybe I'll give a go at one day. I, tell, um, I guarantee but, you the next time we speak, if we do this again, you're going to have a scarf. I'm going to crochet. I'm going to crochet. I'm going to crochet you a scarf. Yeah. Um, no, I've got a couple of different, uh, sort of about two or three different scripts that I'm kind of working at the moment. It's more of a challenge about which to, what, what to make next, you know, because I think there's – I've never had the weight of expectation on anything I've done before. Like, everything I've done has been less like, small, and a few people see it as great. But, like, no one's ever had, like, oh, we want this from you before. And now, like, people, you know, expecting, oh, we've got, for, for starters, the amount of times every day people go, when's it for the side two coming out? Like, the demand for a sequel is deafening. <laughs> so, which is like, I'll give it a consideration, but I think it's a, a bit of a poison chalice. It's like, you're never going to make a film that's going to satisfy everyone. I think if I was going to do it, potentially make a, a, like a, a mini series with, like, you know, six episodes, each episode focusing on like a different character, a bit of prequel, a bit of sequel, a bit of during, a kind of right. a mixture of everything. It's a mixed bag for, you know, just to flesh out the story even more and some of the characters and, you know, and obviously what would happen afterwards probably in the last episode. But so Netflix, if you're listening, I'm up for it if you are. Have you noticed that more people want to play rugby because of your movie? Yes. I've de- there's definitely been a lot of people who message the, 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 the film page and ask where can I find my, my local club? And I forward them to IGR, which is International Gay Rugby, where there's a uh, Find My Club feature on the website where you can find the nearest club to you. So your movie comes out in New York and L.A. on the 20th of January. It's starting off in L.A. New York and I think hopefully moving to some other cities and to, you know, just spreading as it goes, you know. Uh, so hopefully people can, you know, it'll be in a uh, theatre near wherever your listeners are listening to this from. Well, I really enjoyed it. I really loved talking to you and... This was your thing, and you just saw it through all the way. You did all the stuff. I really admire it. I think it's really cool. Um, here's my final question. What have you learned about yourself through this whole process? Oh, my God. I mean, it's been so – I mean, you think about how long – I started writing this film with Adam about five years ago, nearly six years ago. So it's been a, it's been a whole journey. I, think I learned a lot about myself. I've not stopped being a perfectionist. I think, I think that's important in, in some ways to have a, a good eye for detail and to have like a – to not just go, oh, I don't want to be a perfectionist. But I think to know when to apply that and when to let things go and to have that kind of judgment of like, when does this require a level of perfectionism or, or, or does this, is this fine actually? And I can focus on things that do need to. And also just to, to, I think, you know, we've had mixed criticism for the film, like every project has, you know, and I think reading those negative criticisms were, were, were challenging to be with. And now I've got to the point where it's actually, I don't care so much about what, if people don't like the film, because you can't please everyone. If you do, you're going to make something that's super vanilla and super like, you know, bland that, to please everyone. I think in some ways you've got to just concentrate on the people who do like your film. And that was difficult to, as a creator or, you know, a creative person to sort of, to go, actually, I'm not going to sweat the kind of bad stuff and just to kind of go, I'm just going to make what I want to make. And in some, some sense it's, yeah, it's freed me up to think about future projects in a way of going, I don't care if this is a crowd pleaser. I think this is interesting. And uh, people are coming to see what I think is interesting, not what I think I'm trying to make for them. 
if that makes sense. It's a very yeah. weird roundabout answer, but I hope that answers it. No, I think it's they're good lessons, and it seems like you've always you always believed you could do it. Like you always, you seem like you believe yeah. that you can do big things. I know that I, when, I, when, we, when I wrote the film, I knew we could do it. I, I knew that I could pull off the things that we were writing. It's it's more of a case of uh, slowly convincing other people that you can do it. You know, because other people are the gatekeepers of the things you want to do. And, you know, I'm, I'm so glad. The one thing I hope you know, comes from this film is it's now it's a calling card where people go, you know, no one wants to give you money to make a film because they go, they only give you money if you made a film before. So it's like Catch-22 kind of thing where it's like, how, how do you make a movie without money? And no one will give you the money to make a movie because you've not made a movie before. Whereas now I've got this for a movie. I can say, look, I've done it. I can do this again for you, and hopefully you'll believe me this time because you've seen it. Right. <laughs> Whereas it's always it's always a challenge to try and get other people to kind of to to you know join you on that journey, and you know you kind of have to kind of pitch it to them and stuff. But it's nice when you've got something you can point to and go that that's the evidence I can do it. You know. Um, so yeah. Well, congratulations! It was really fun talking to you. I hope everyone checks out in from the side, and hopefully our paths will cross someday at some film festival or. This this Absolutely. country or your country or I'd love to actually meet you in person rather than sort of you know through through time zones in different right. countries. I, we could throw around the rugby ball. What's it called? The, what's the Absolutely. rugby? Th- it's called a ball, right? It's a ball. Yeah, it's we, a ball. We, we, we don't have a fancy name for rugby. It's a funny shape, but it's still just a ball. I know it is a funny shape, which I appreciate. It's kind of cool. I was like, oh, that's cool. It's like a, it's a slightly larger American football shape. It's that kind of like egg kind of point. I don't know. I don't know what you call it. I'm sure there's a name for it that I'm. I'm going to be annoyed that I can't remember, but yeah. Thank you so much, Matt. It was fun talking to you. Cheers. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Thanks again to Matt Carter. Check out his movie, In From The Side. It opens on Friday, January 20th in New York and L.A. And you can keep up with where it goes from there uh, on the Instagram page, In From The Side. And also you can check out strandreleasing.com. They're the distributor, and they will have other news about the movie. Before I get into So This Happened, I want to get a plug-in for an upcoming guest of the podcast. I'm going to be talking to Eric Orner soon. He is the man behind a book called Smart Guy, which is a graphic novel. Uh, that Eric wrote and, and and illustrated about the life of Barney Frank. It's really good. I just finished it. And Eric is going to be in Los Angeles on the 26th at Skylight Books in Silver Lake. And then he's going to be at Cal Arts on the 27th and up in San Francisco uh, at Fabuloso Books. I think that's what it's called. On the 30th. So if you're in any of those places, you might want to go see that reading. And then we'll be talking to Eric soon. So this happened. The last time I recorded one of these intros, I had been sick with COVID for about a month. Like the post-COVID tired stomach. It was not pretty, and I'm starting to get better. I've kind of backslid a little bit, but the good news is I had all these events planned for last weekend, and I was able to do all of them. I was I felt good enough, and I didn't have to cancel anything, so I'm going to break it down for you. The first was Mean Girls, the musical, at the Pantages Theater, and I'm a fan of the movie. I love Tina Fey. Um, it knocked my socks off. It was even more delightful than I thought it would be. The performances are all great. The way they used the sets and the projections was was awesome. So if you're in L.A. or that tour comes to your town, go see it. It's so much fun. I loved it. Um, I also love the way Regina George is treated like a Bond villain. Like, her songs are kind of Bondian in those those kind of minor chords, which I love. So, yeah, I'm all about Mean Girls and Musical. And then Friday night, I went to see RRR again, the Indian movie that's uh, up for a few Oscars that I've been obsessed with. I literally feel like I'm in a church now, like some kind of cult for RRR. So I, there was a Q&A with S.S. Rizzuli, the director, and people were screaming and dancing in the aisles. And I just left there on such a high. And I um, bought shirts for me and my friend Danny to wear RRR shirts from Amazon. And they got they got a lot of compliments. Although I forgot that mine also has an image on the back. So I just wore my jacket the whole night, which I could have got more 
um, love for my shirt. Had I not, but you know what? You live and learn these things. But if you have a chance to see that movie on the big screen, drop everything and go do it. And the actors who are in the movie were in L.A. this week doing different screenings and Q&As, and I've just been following them like some weird groupie online. And I don't, I don't know. I just love that movie so much. It makes me so happy. Oh, oh and I got to ask a question of S.S. Rizzuli during the Q&A because you know my hand is right up. I always have a question. That's like my thing. And I asked him if there were any happy accidents in his movie because everything's so meticulously planned out. I wondered if there were things that happened spontaneously that he kept in. And he said there was one shot through a circle of fire where he shoots one of his heroes through a circle of fire. And that's kind of iconic. They use it in a lot of the ads and stuff. And he said that that was not planned. He just sort of figured out how to do it on the day and kind of grabbed it when nobody was, you know, really focused on it. And uh, it's part of the movie now. So I felt good about my question because you could feel the audience go, mm, like they kind of went, mm, you know, and I'm like, ah. That's a rush. I love that moment. Okay, so that was Friday. And then Saturday, I went to... A friend of mine has a wrap your crap party where you do, like, white elephant Christmas gifts. And I bought the Showgirls Activity book for my gift, which we had the uh, co-writer, James Carroll, on the show uh, for my gift guide in December. So I bought one of those. But I felt like it wasn't quite... um, an expensive enough gift for this, so I bought a pink candle to go with it and a fancy little pen and crayons, and I kind of made a whole thing. And it did get stolen once, so I think that's the mark of a good white elephant gift if somebody steals it at the party just once. And so the person that got it was something that really wanted to curl up with the um, Showgirls Activity book and draw some tassels on some tits and stuff like that. So that was a win. And then uh, Sunday, I had my second annual dream board party with my friend Tom Goss, who was also on the podcast recently. He has this cool studio down by the airport in Los Angeles. And so I, you know, bought some poster board off Amazon for folks and scissors and, and bagels. And we went and I really was afraid going, going into the week that I wouldn't be up for all of this stuff, but I did all of it. And we had a lot of fun and, um, it was really fun. I think, and then people would share like what they wanted to do this year. And I don't know, it was very, made you feel good. It made you feel excited about the year and your life. And it was a good group. So that's all that. That's all that. So that's my, so this happened. And now I'm starting to do this new thing this year where I'm like, so lately I've been thinking about blank. So lately I've been thinking about Colin Farrell. I'm kind of obsessed with Colin Farrell. When did he become the wise, soulful Yoda of our time? Like, did you see him on the Golden Globes? He won, and he gave this really gracious speech, and then he helps Jennifer Coolidge up the stairs, and his performances in in the Banshees of Inisherin, he is so raw and deep. Like, he has become, like, this amazing man. Like, I just want to learn the secrets of the universe from Colin Farrell, and that's usually not what you get with somebody so hot. You know, I remember him from bursting onto the scene and he took Britney to that award show and he kind of had his arm around her neck and of course there's the sex tape which was delightful and now he's like this really deep sweet man um, and uh, he, I'm, I'm starting to watch this movie After Yang that he's in and he dances in part of it so he just keeps giving until it hurts and there's a interview with him and Jamie Lee Curtis on Variety.com where they, you know, they, they have in conversation where there's no interviewer, it's just them. 
and they get into some really thoughtful, deep stuff about art, about life, about the human condition, all the stuff I'm into, all the woo-woo, all the dream board, all the, why do you write? Like, all that stuff that I, you know, if you listen to this podcast, you know that's kind of my thing. And it's all about it. He's all about it. So lately I've been thinking about Colin Farrell, and I think you should too. That's the point. All right. Thanks so much for listening. Shout out to AJ Sousa for mixing. JB Bursey, thanks for your additional technical support. My theme music is my Bark Daniels for placement music. We'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Anyone.